0: And welcome to episode two of Criminal Broads, a podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, and I'm here today to tell you the story of one of my favorite female criminals. Now, air quotes around favorite. I obviously do not condone her actions, but I love this story. I love telling this story. I love this story because this story feels like fiction. It does not seem like it should be true. It seems like a legend that sprung out of the wild, wild west, you know? It, it really feels like something our grandmothers would have told us to warn us about encountering strangers on the open road in the dark. But it's true. It really happened. So let's go to Kansas in the 1870s when a very, very strange family came to town. Do you know about the concept of the golden child? Some families just seem to have one kid that's a lot more special than the others. It's kind of a cruel concept, but it is sometimes true. The golden child just sort of exudes success and effortlessness and kindness and charm. The golden child is usually attractive and also knows how to make other people feel attractive and comfortable and happy. Above all, I would say the golden child knows the rules of society. It knows how to move through society. This is not a gift all of us have, and this is a very useful gift. Kate Bender was the golden child of her family. At least, she looked that way to the outside world, which is another trick the golden child has, the trick of appearing a certain way. Kate's family knew her far too well to be fooled by her charms. They'd seen the dried blood in the creases of her knuckles. They knew exactly what she looked like when she dumped a body through a trapdoor. But to the outside world, she looked warm and charming and perfect. And that's all it takes sometimes. You don't have to be good. You just have to convince the rest of the world that you're good. And then, safe within your own myth, you can do whatever you want. The year 1870 the place kansas what do we know about kansas in the 1870s it was wild we're talking windswept plains miles and miles between homesteads desolate expanses of dangerous roads and lots of criminals if you were a criminal from the north or east and needed to you know disappear and uh, reinvent yourself kansas was the place to be so not only did the country folk of kansas live very far apart from each other But their nearest neighbor may very well be someone sketchy, someone with a past, someone trying to hide something, someone like Kate. In 1870, Kate Bender showed up in Kansas with her family, her parents, Ma and Pa, and her brother, John Jr. At least, she said these people were her family. Some accounts say that John Jr. was her husband, or lover, or brother but also lover, There's also a chance that these four people were not related to each other in the slightest, but were a gang, thrown together by whatever wild winds bring together desperados, connected only by their mutual love of money and their willingness to do whatever it took to get more of it. They settled down about two hours southeast of Wichita on a plot of land near a little town called Cherryvale. Their land was right by a main road, so they did the smart thing and opened up an inn. See, a lot of men were traveling out west in those days to grab a homestead or two, and these men needed a place to sleep and refuel. The Bender Inn sold gunpowder, crackers, tobacco, sardines, and you could get a warm dinner there, and you could, of course, spend the night. Now, it was just a tiny one-room cabin that the Benders divided into two rooms by hanging up a piece of heavy Kansas. The front room was the store in the dining area. The back room was the one and only bedroom. It was small and kind of grimy, but that was pretty typical for Kansas in the 1870s. The strangest thing about the entire place was that Pa Bender was always plowing the orchard. Always, always plowing the orchard. Neighbors thought that that was weird. Neighbors also thought that the benders in general were kind of weird. Ma and Pa Bender had thick German accents and were surly and generally unpleasant. No one who ever interacted with them walked away thinking, aw, what sweet people, that was such a nice little chat. They were mean and clearly didn't like other people and wouldn't look you in the eye and weren't afraid to curse at you. Now, John Jr. was nicer and a bit more amenable to a chat, but he was also kind of odd. He would laugh at nothing, he had a general creepy vibe, and his mustache was, quite frankly, disturbing. Interesting and totally irrelevant, tidbit, John Bender is also the name of the antihero from The Breakfast Club. I highly doubt there's any connection, but it's an interesting fact. So the Benders were weird and unpleasant, kind of, but Kate was the exception. She was the golden child. Later, after she became infamous, newspapers would rave about her looks. Her perfect figure, her flaming red hair, her milky skin, her fiery, compelling, irresistible spirit. She was a good dancer. She could make conversation with a rock. She was a legendary flirt, a hard worker, always hustling, full of some irresistible spark that seemed to never go out. She waitressed. She gave lectures about a wacky belief system called spiritualism. She sold herbal remedies and offered to use her psychic powers to locate lost objects. She always had a second stream of income coming in. But the most important thing to note about Kate is that she mingled with society well. She spoke good English, and she just knew how to be around other people. Ma and Pa and John Jr. did not know how to be around other people. Kate could infiltrate society. Her veneer of goodness, her flirty, energetic, appealing nature was actually the ultimate disguise. So, business at the inn was going pretty well in 1870, 1871, 1872. The Benders took in guests and sent them on their way, well rested, well fed, and probably crushing on Kate. Well, most guests went their way happily. A few of them didn't have the best time at the Bender Inn. One woman noticed that John Jr. was sharpening a knife and staring right at her, in a way that scared her so much that she actually ran from the house and hid in the fields around the inn, and noticed that John and Pa came outside and started looking for her, stomping around the fields to find her. She lay there, barely breathing until they stopped. A male guest noticed the sound of moaning and rustling coming from the cellar, but Kate told him that a hog had gotten under the house. Another guest heard even creepier noises in the middle of the night, A scream woke him up, and as he listened, he heard several blows, and then the scream stopped. And then, horrifyingly, he noticed that Kate Bender was standing over him, watching to see if he was awake. Now, there were so many travelers in those days, and the land was still so violent, that when stories of missing men began to circulate around the area, no one was all that concerned. The sad truth was that men disappeared all the time back then. You could die fording a river. You could die in a ditch. Some wild animal could eat you. You could threaten the wrong local bartender and end up with a bullet in your back. This was the accepted price men paid for trying to settle a wild country. So locals knew that men were going missing in their area. But they didn't know why, and at first they didn't seem particularly concerned with figuring it out. No one could have imagined that a family of serial killers was operating right under their noses. The screams in the middle of the night, the moaning and rustling under the house, the slightly too charming smile of Kate Bender with its devilish undertones. This was all a front. A front for what one newspaper article called the most terrible den of murderers and robbers which ever infested the Southwest. The men who stayed at the Bender Inn were traveling west to set up a new life, and so they often had a lot of money on them. They were travelers, they were tired, and so spotting the Bender Inn on the horizon must have been a wonderful relief for them. And then there was Kate, smiling and fixing their dinner. An angel, that golden child. She'd seat them at the table in front of the Kansas Curtain, Ma Bender would sit outside, fixing her eyes on the road, and the Bender men would be nowhere to be seen. As Kate flirted and cooked and distracted the traveler, Ma kept watch. If she saw another traveler pulling into the inn, she'd give a high-pitched cough, which meant, WARNING! SOMEONE'S COMING! And the first traveler would live. But if Ma was silent, if no one was coming up the road, Then the traveler was doomed as kate distracted him pa or john jr would be crouching behind the canvas curtain holding a hammer as soon as the guests laughed or shifted or brushed his head up against the curtain the bender man would leap forward and bring the hammer down and crush his skull and then kate would pull out a knife and slit his throat the family would push the body into the cellar And once night fell, they'd drag the corpse out to the orchard, dig a makeshift grave, and dump the body there. Later, Pa would plow the ground over and over again to hide the coffin-shaped square of fresh earth. We don't know how many people the Benders killed. They murdered at least 11, but some accounts say 21, and as with all serial killers, it's possible that the body count was higher than we'll ever know. Their plan was, in a diabolical way, perfect. They killed travelers whose families back East would have had no idea that they were dead for weeks or even months. They killed rich men who were strangers to the area so they could take their cash and their horses and wagons and no one would ever report the goods missing. And the inn made everything seem normal. It was genius, but eventually they did what many serial killers do and they got greedy. They killed the wrong person. They reached too high. They killed someone important whose family noticed immediately that he was gone. Here's a name you probably weren't expecting to hear right now. Laura Ingalls Wilder. Yes, (laughs) the beloved author of Little House on the Prairie lived in the Bender area when she was a child. And in later speeches and writings, Laura claimed that she had not only known about the Benders, but that her father had helped hunt for the Benders. Now, this couldn't have happened. The Ingalls family left the area before the Benders' crimes were discovered. But it's a good example of just how much this story permeated people's consciousness. Laura Ingalls Wilder remembers the Bender myth as though she was there, even though she wasn't. One of the Benders' final victims was actually a neighbor of the Ingalls, though, back in the day. He was a German widower named G. W. Longcore, and he was taking his daughter to Iowa to live with her grandparents. On this trip, Longcore stopped in the nearby city of Independence and purchased a new wagon and a team of horses from a man named Dr. William York. Longcore and his daughter set off in their new wagon, and it's heartbreaking to imagine what they talked about on that last ride together. Maybe he explained to his little girl that he was taking her to live with her grandparents and that she wasn't going to live with him anymore, at least not for a while. They rode along and maybe the sky grew dark and they spotted a tiny country inn on the horizon. No one knows exactly how Longcore and his sweet little girl met their end, what their last words were, or whether the benders hesitated even for a moment when they saw the child. All we know is that father and daughter were buried in the same grave, There were no signs of struggle on the girl's body, which led people to speculate that she was either strangled or buried alive beneath her father. Back in the nearby city of Independence, Dr. William York got word that the two of them had gone missing. And set off to find them. He began his search in March of 1873, riding a beautiful horse and carrying almost $1,000 in cash. And then he vanished. Now, unlike the Bender's other victims, Dr. York lived nearby. This meant that he had more than enough people who noticed that he never returned home and who immediately raised the alarm. Dr. York also had two very powerful brothers, Alexander M. York, a Kansas senator, and Colonel Ed York, a Civil War veteran. Because of this, his absence quickly became a huge national deal. Papers all over the country began writing about it. Search parties were looking for him. The rivers were dragged. The locals were being interviewed. The York siblings were determined to find their missing brother. So at this point, several things started happening at once. People were looking for Dr. York, The residents of Cherryvale were realizing that they needed to do something about all these missing travelers, and the benders were starting to notice that the water was getting real hot around them. Dr. York's disappearance had really shed a light on all the other disappearances that had been happening for the past two years, and so Cherryvale residents actually had a meeting to decide what they should do about all this scandal that was swirling around their town. They even spoke about burning the murderers to death once they were found, and the Bender men were actually at this meeting and pretended to be totally uninterested in the outcome. Anyway, while all this was happening, the Benders gathered their cash might have been as much as $50,000, which in 1873 was a mind-blowing amount of money, and slipped away in the night to catch a train. By the time suspicion landed on the Bender farm, The benders themselves were long gone. The search of the Bender Farm, led by Colonel Ed York, was as grisly as you can imagine. At first, the searchers didn't find anything too incriminating, but they noticed a smell. They found a trapdoor that led to the cellar, and, upon crawling down there, here's what one paper said. They found themselves in an abyss, shaped like a well, some six feet deep. Here and there, little damp places could be seen. They groped about over these splotches and held up a handful to the light. The ooze smeared itself over their palms and drippled through their fingers. It was blood. But there were no bodies in the cellar. No bodies hidden in the house. The men even rolled the entire house away from its foundation and still found nothing. Eventually, Colonel York sat on his wagon to rest and fight off an encroaching sense of despair. From his seat, he had a clear view of the entire Bender property, and something in the orchard caught his eye. A series of long, narrow depressions in the ground. He stood up. Boys, he called. I see graves out there! The men rushed to the orchard and began to dig. The first body they uncovered was lying face down with a smashed skull, a slashed throat. It was Dr. York, buried in a grave only two feet deep without a coffin. Some of the men had to leave the scene, they were so disturbed by what they'd seen. And Colonel York slumped down by the remains of his brother and just sat there like someone keeping vigil. He could not be comforted, one newspaper account wrote on may 10th 1873 newspapers in kansas were tripping over themselves to describe the indescribable the Cherryvale horror cried a headline in the fort scott daily monitor the all-absorbing theme yesterday was the horrible murders so lately unearthed in labette county Among all the bloody crimes of the Kansas border, none has ever approached this wholesale slaughter in horrid atrocity. The details are truly sickening. This article went on to speak of unbelievable things, a burying ground that, quote, made the blood curdle with horror. Bodies with their skulls crushed and their throats cut, mutilated, decaying bodies and a county full of horrified, furious people slavering at the mouths to kill the murderers who were responsible for getting away with this right underneath their noses. But the Benders were gone. They had done exactly what the West had promised that you could do, go out, change your name, reinvent yourself, disappear. In many ways, the Benders were the dark underbelly of the American dream. They were immigrants who came out claimed land, ploughed it into submission, became entrepreneurs, and uh, built up their savings accounts. At the same time, they were also killing American dreamers, slashing the throats of the men and the families who were going west, trying to make a new life for themselves. The whole tale was just so American. It began with someone settling a wild frontier, and it ended with someone vanishing into the sunset. And because the benders were like this dark mirror held up to american they became myths immediately. As soon as the bodies were dug up, newspapers and authorities began assuring the public that they would have answers soon, that the perpetrators would be caught that night or in a few days, but the answers didn't come. The perpetrators were not caught and not caught and still not caught. The state of Kansas even offered a $2,000 reward for anyone who brought the Benders to justice, but no one ever came forward to claim it. Instead of perpetrators being caught, rumors sprouted up. The Benders had gone south. No, the Benders had gone north. The Benders had been killed in a shootout and buried in the deepest of graves. The strangest of the rumors centered around Kate. It was like she'd become this desert mirage. People swore they saw her in New Orleans or Mexico City or New York, Havana, even Paris. They said that she'd married and changed her name and was continuing her killing spree down south. They claimed that she was dressing as a man and working as a cowboy. The paranoia took on a sort of freak show aesthetic. At one point, a couple supposed to be Ma and Pa were displayed at a theater in Kansas for an entire afternoon. 16 years after the discovery of the graves, two women were arrested in Michigan and dragged down to Kansas, where some people said they were Ma and Kate Bender, and some people swore they weren't. None of these unfortunate people were ever proven to be the real Benders. After their disappearance, the Benders' identity had become as malleable and mercurial as the wind over the Great Plains. People of southeastern Kansas were traumatized and furious that the Benders had done all of this right beneath their noses and had gotten away with it. Newspapers printed hysterical accounts of the human hyenas in spiritualist circles and called Kate one of the most infernal hags of the whole nest. Men set off in groups, hellbent on lynching the family, and many of them came home and said, yes, they'd done it. They'd, they'd killed the Benders. But the problem is that everyone had a story about how they'd killed the Benders, or, decades later, how their dad had killed the Benders, how their grandpa had killed the Benders. Even Laura Ingalls Wilder said that whenever the Benders were mentioned, her father would ominously say, they will never be found. Everyone wanted to claim the glory of killing them. Everyone wanted to be the brave American vigilante who gunned the Benders down. In 1908, One deathbed confession of this sort was published in the New York Times. The night was dark, the confession begins, and we feared that they might escape us, but our luck was good. We sighted them racing as fast as they could over the prairie and shouted to them. The moon had risen, but was frequently obscured by heavy clouds. We set our horses going at breakneck speed, and the bullets flew fast from both sides. It sounds like someone telling a story of the west telling a frontier myth instead of actually explaining something that happened in real life now when this man who claims that of course he killed the benders gets to kate the tone shifts my grief how she did fight he says she fought tooth and nail like a tiger and we had to handle her like a bucking bronco In all of these, quote, deathbed confessions, Kate's death is always the most difficult. Maybe everyone gets hung, but Kate, who gets shot. Or everyone is killed almost immediately, except Kate, who fights back. Or everyone gets shot, but Kate gets her skull cracked. Again and again in these stories, Kate fights the hardest and dies the last. It often even takes more than one man to kill her. Why, why was this? Why were so many people claiming that not only had they killed the Benders, but they'd killed Kate and it was hardest to kill Kate? It's because Kate was the one who betrayed them the most. To the residents of Cherryvale, Ma and Pa were hardened, weird German criminals who barely spoke the language. John Jr. was a simple-minded schmuck, but Kate... Kate seemed like one of them. She was young, pretty, seductive, charming, or so she led them to believe. She moved through society the way you were supposed to move through society, and she, she blended in well. So Kate's violent, fictional deaths are the price she has to pay for being the most deceptive, for looking normal, but secretly being the wickedest one of all. For tricking them into believing that she was the golden child. I tell you, man, she was a bad one, said another man in another deathbed confession. She screamed and bit and cursed and kicked, so someone cracked her skull for her with a stick, and another one put a bullet or two through her brain. it's probably not how kate died if everyone wanted so badly to have killed the benders i think we would know if someone actually had <laughs> the reward would have been claimed or one story would have risen up against all the others as clearly the most true the most logical conclusion we can make to the bender story is that kate and her family got away they went free they vanished into the sunset they Maybe even killed again, you know, set up another inn and another wild place, or turned to a different sort of murder. They probably kept on pursuing their own twisted version of the American dream, vanishing deeper and deeper into the wild land that had helped them escape before. I don't think anyone cracked Kate's skull for her with a stick. At the end of the day, she fooled everyone and never paid for it. Kate Bender got away. If you listened to the first episode of Criminal Broads, you remember the story of Lavinia Fisher, the alleged serial killer who lured wealthy travelers to her inn outside of Charleston, poisoned them, and sent them flying through a trapdoor in the floor to a cellar full of spikes where they would die. Lavinia was killed in 1820, and 50 years later, Kate Bender showed up in Kansas. Now, there is absolutely no proof that Lavinia Fisher was a serial killer. Her legend is wildly overblown. It is mostly legend. But Kate Bender? There is evidence. We have evidence. There are literally photos of the open graves um, found in the Bender Inn. You know, there's a bloody knife alleged to be hers that's in a small Kansas museum. There's even a little advertisement, um, a little paper advertisement that she used to circulate that advertises her herbs and her potions. Now, I'm not here to set forth any conspiracy theories as much as I would love to hear that Lavinia Fisher was reincarnated into Kate Bender. All I want to point out is that the legend of Lavinia Fisher is eerily similar to the actual, true story of Kate Bender, and isn't that strange and fascinating and kind of scary? I think it just goes to show that for every legend that's out there, floating around, that gets disproven, chances are there's one out there that's real. Thank you so much for listening to Criminal Broads. I would love if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked it, I would obviously love if you would leave a review. Any feedback very welcome. Um, you can follow along on Instagram at criminal pod, uh, excuse me, at Criminal Broads. And I will see you next time. We're gonna move. Uh, we're gonna have one more story of serial killers, and then we're gonna move away into some other criminal areas for a while, don't you worry. There are more serial killers to come. But I think there's a cult leader in our future and a very strange, uh, dietitian. (laughs) All right. I hope you enjoyed and I look forward to talking with you next time. Bye-bye.